Equity is brought to you by ExaCrunch, that prodigious TechCrunch paywall you keep running into. You can break through that paywall at a steep discount if you use the promo code equity. If you do, you'll get access to our best stuff and you'll make equity look really good internally at the same time. Enough of that, let's start the show. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I'm joined today by my usual bodacious crew. I have Danny Crichton here. Danny, hello and how are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, Refreshing the vaccine finder page on NYC every five seconds and discovering just how many places I haven't been to in New York City. Also explains why you never answer my Slack DMs, but someone who does is Natasha Moscarenas, who is also here. Natasha, how are you doing? I'm probably not doing as great as you are because you have a new puppy in your life and I don't have that. (laughs) Not only do I have a new puppy in my life, but Magnolia Maggie Wagner Wilhelm is currently in my lap and is going to be our little co-pilot throughout this entire show. So hello from Puppyville, aka I clean up a lot of pee now. But that is not what we're here to talk about, although she is adorable. We are here to talk about a number of media topics, followed by a discussion about the future of the value of software revenues. And then we're going to wrap with two fascinating venture capital funds, Harlem Capital and Mac Venture Capital. But first, Natasha, Substack has put together not 10 million, not 50 million, but $65 million. Reactions to the amount of capital for newsletters. Reaction was I went on vacation for three days, came back to Substack being valued at $650 million in a round led by Andreessen Horowitz. And I barely blinked an eye. Like I was like, did this happen? Like I checked the date because I thought maybe it happened like a few months ago and it was just getting more play. I feel like Substack has been a topic of conversation for so long based on the people I follow on Twitter that it's hard to know when something new is happening. But this round, obviously, jokes aside, is a huge deal for the company, which if you don't know, helps people create newsletters, helps people get paid for newsletters and has attracted a whole slew of writers, journalists, to their product. Various levels of controversy. Danny, and that was a, a big thing before this round came out was that there was a kerfuffle amongst, you might say, our class of the writing world, the heavy tweeting writer blogger types about Substack essentially using its Substack Pro program to seed capital to newly brought aboard writers, giving them kind of a guaranteed income for the first year before they take their normal revenue split. Notably, Danny, they're going to double down on that. Reactions to uh, the decision by Substack to just go whole hog on the thing that was pissing everyone off. Substack wants to have it two ways, right? They want to be a platform that is independent, that doesn't have editorial control. But at the same time, they are an editor. They're picking people to get funding. They're hiring folks, if you will, even though they're their own independent businesses. But they're essentially a VC firm, right? So you have this kind of unique mix where they're not Visa, where it's just credit card fees. And you're like, well, I refuse to use Visa because other people I don't like use Visa. That doesn't make a lot of sense. It's a credit card. Right. But, you know, Substack is taking money from fees and its venture capitalists to fund folks that, you know, some writers disagree with. Obviously, there's a lot of controversial people on the platform across the spectrum. And so, you know, to me, this is always going to be the challenge with Substack. On one hand, controversy sells. We compiled some user growth data over the last two years. In July 2019, 50,000 paying subscribers, according to Neiman. Our number was 100,000 in March 2020. December last year, a quarter million, according to NPR. Just two months ago, 500,000, according to Bloomberg. So controversy clearly is selling. Those are paying subscribers. People love to subscribe to things that, you know, piss them off in the morning. But to me, like that's always going to be the challenge to Substack is if controversy is what sells, how do you keep all the controversial people who disagree with each other in one place? 
So, well, there's two ways to think about that. One is it won't be hard because they'll keep substacking away at one another, creating more controversy and attention and driving up their numbers. On the other hand, there has been some people trying to leave the platform to go somewhere else. And, and this is where product comes into play and the idea of a moat, because, you know, Substack, we think of it as a relatively simple platform, but honestly, it's it's pretty slick. I mean, I, I've i been using Substack for, gosh, I don't actually know how long. I remember when you created yours, Alex, <laughs> and then I was like, I'm going to grab Natasha before it gets taken. Did you get Natasha? I did. I, oh, biggest gosh. flex, only Natasha. Maybe Substack subdomains are the new Twitter handles. I don't know. <laughs> That's what I was hoping. <laughs> because my Substack URL sucks and you've got a terrible Twitter handle, so it's perfect. <laughs> there we go. And ladies and gentlemen, if you've worked with someone for three years, you can make that comment. But if yes, you've worked you in can. less than three years, you can't. So be careful with your colleagues. <laughs> On the other hand, but the Substack isn't that simple. It is a pretty good product. It is slick. It does work. And it plugs into your Stripe account and you get to keep your subscribers. So like, there has to be a product that's better than all of that for people to go to in a political dispute with Substack itself product network effects here are very limited right now. I mean, what I would actually be concerned about quite heavily is there's not cross-promote. And in fact, you can never go to the medium route where you're trying to have one publication sell another publication because fundamentally people disagree on the platform. So everyone wants their own independent business. That's the Substack model. So how do you cross-promote each other publications to get a network effect? Substack launched a reader product that was designed for people like me who had 65 different newsletters so there's a little bit potentially there on the reader experience. But again, like you ultimately want these emails delivered to your inbox. That's sort of the whole premise of Substack. So I, I'm curious because ultimately it seems like a really well-oiled integration with MailChimp and, you know, a CRM, a subscription service. Like it works. It's great. And that's a great onboarding for writers who otherwise probably don't know how to connect all the dots of software. But how much of a mode is that really? Totally. I mean, I think there's something that has obviously attracted journalists we know and love to the platform. The idea of you get to send an article to the inbox of someone who has paid with their dollars and said that they want to read your stuff. That's how much they want to read it. And I do wonder at that point, like the saturation of newsletters has consistently been the critique of Substack. At a certain point, I was like, I'm getting 40, 50 updates a day because a lot of the newsletters started monthly then went to weekly, then went to daily. So when I signed up, it was like once a month. I was like, oh, this isn't very costly. And then it became 20 times a month. And I, I, I actually purged. Like two weeks ago, I went through and unsubscribed from, I think, 59 of them. I think I'm subscribed to five or six yeah. left. Yeah. Another thing to keep in mind is the people who are coming after Substack. I mean, Twitter and the review integration is interesting, though I'm not quite sure how well it's doing so far. We'll go back to Twitter in a minute in the Clubhouse section of this, actually. But Facebook has been tinkering this as well. And that's why I think Andreessen probably put this round together. They're like, look, this is obviously a growing niche. We think it has long-term legs. We want to win. So we're going to put the capital in for two reasons. One, Substack Pro to keep paying people to bring them on the platform. And then also on the product sense, they've talked about in their release, building, quote, increasingly powerful subscription publishing tools and building more support infra. So that to me is kind of the strategy. We'll see how it plays out. Last point here before we move on. You know, what's interesting is injuries and doubled down, right? It's not uncommon these days for venture firms to double down, but they've now doubled down twice in a market where I think a lot of VCs are still really skeptical there's a business here. I don't know how many people were willing to show up at the cap table at 650 million to do Substack. I think Andreessen did that because they believe. That's incredible. We'll see if they're right. I'll give a singular brownie point to Substack, hopefully, if I'm being an optimist. If they do expand the Substack Pro feature, they have an opportunity here to be hopefully more transparent with it. I mean, they definitely butchered their messaging about the Pro details to begin with, and writers have left the platform as a result, and they've lost revenue as a result. 
But if with this new money, they have new pressure to start investing and subsidizing more diverse writers, that would be great. Danny, as you said in the beginning, I feel like Substack can no longer play both sides. And let's hope they pick the right side. Well, they can play both sides so long as they admit to it. You just can't play both sides and only claim to be on one side of the fence. Anyways, we could talk about that for like 48 years. I know. That's actually... <laughs> We should we, get a substack. Like so we can get a substack <laughs> where we can talk about it for literally thousands of words per day. But we should talk about Cameo because to me, Cameo is actually one of the most brilliant content plays that I have seen in years and has all the network effects that Substack does not. So Alex, tell us a little bit about what happened here. So Cameo, an app that I made fun of to myself quietly when it first came out, <laughs> proving again why I should not be a VC ever. Just put together a $100 million Series C led by Jonathan Turner over at E.Dot Ventures. Is it E-Ventures or E.Dot Ventures? I've always said E.Dot and I'm terrified now. The Google search will get you to the right place with the dot. Yeah, so just Google Jonathan Turner, E.Dot Ventures, and you'll get there. Anyways, values it just over a billion dollars. So Cameo is now a unicorn and holy I'm surprised by that. <laughs> the information quite recently had posted revenue numbers for Cameo, and they were doing better than we expected, or better than I think the jokes let it out to be. Let me pull it up real quick. On that point, while you do that, there's a rapper that I followed by the name of Ritz that I've known for a kajillion years. I have some emotional attachments to some of his music. He also went through a substance abuse problem and went to rehab and has kind of written his musical career around that progression. So very important to me. And uh, he does a lot of cameos. And I think as an independent artist now who kind of runs his own label, I think cameos are kind of a regular stream of income in between record releases and tours. I think he does a lot of them. So it must be, I mean, think about the cut they take. It must be pretty lucrative, Tosh. Also, this is one of the few places where I think celebrities and VCs make a lot more sense than the other examples we've seen in the past few weeks. I just pulled up the information story, which came out January 2021. Alex Heath reported that customers spent $100 million buying cameo messages last year which is an uptick of 4.5 times from the previous year, which translates into about 25 million in revenue. So obviously this valuation is a huge markup on how <laughs> great they're doing. Huge signal. Danny, what's up? What's amazing here is twofold. One is, it's one of the best startups for gifts. I, as a VC, I've seen gift startups for literally a decade. I mean, it's actually kind of incredible how many like gift related stuff, you know, how do you get into the gift economy, you know, either at work or in person? And like, there really is not a great startup. I mean, maybe you could argue Etsy and some folks have gotten into this oh, market sure. and have been successful. Yeah. But like Cameo was the first place I've ever seen where I was like, wow, this actually makes a lot of sense. If you really know someone, you know, the actors they like or the actresses or the movies or the TV shows, you search on Cameo. I actually did this with my own parents. And I was like, wow, like one of the actors from one of my father's favorite TV shows is like on Cameo for 75 bucks for a one minute message. And I was like, that's so much more meaningful than sending another cup. And then the other piece here. I think gets a little underestimated because it's such a consumer product is Cameo actually has a, a product line called Cameo for Business, yes, which is designed to bring celebrity videos into events and conferences, ads and sales. To me, if you add in the consumer gift, that gets you a bunch of traction just from a lot of folks in corporates knowing that you exist. And then the real money in the next couple of years to me is going to be businesses where five, 10 minute clip, $50,000. It's cheaper than a speaker's bureau. It's cheaper than having this person fly out and pay, you know, serious money to show up at the conference, but you can have a nice custom message. And to me, there's like going to be an enormous amount of revenue coming from that line in the next couple of years. Alex, you and me were on the Techstars event that had a cameo of a celebrity kind of welcoming the new batch almost a year ago, or maybe I don't know what time is anymore. I think it adds like a smile to your face, which is so hard to do with remote events, which we all know. Yes. And then one last little note about this, and we're going to move on to Clubhouse after this. But the thing is, what is the definitionally a celebrity has changed over time? And I think it's become a much broader pool of people. So that allows for more niche interest to have their own kind of celebrities. Like I'm sure we're going to have 
have esports players eventually on Cameo, if not already doing things for fans of their League of Legends team or whatever. You know, and so it's not going to just be celebrities that you see on television. It's going to be a much broader pool. And that to me makes the TAM just larger and therefore the business possibly bigger in time. They connected with the creator economy. That was a key piece. They also connected with this view of, again, the democratization of celebrities, which we saw through Patreon and a bunch of other things. And then I would call it this long tail fandom, which is you could be a celebrity in the 70s. Yeah. But my parents remember this. Like, this is their child. You know, it's like the, all different generations. Different Ted Mosby is on there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Ted Mosby. Like, you know, from um, the, sweet life of the, the, the breadth here is incredible. And to me, there's a true network effect. You know, they take a larger, if you think about it, I think you mentioned it, it's a 25% take rate. So compare this to Substack, right? You know, Substack has a 10% take rate with no network effects. This is a 25% take rate with network effects that actually makes a lot of sense. Like no one else is going to be able to build the kind of marketplace that Cameo is building. That's why I'm super bullish. And if Cameo is video clips, I mean, obviously the most popular thing going on right now is Clubhouse, invite-only audio chat rooms, somehow invented the concept of talking to friends. You know, Clubhouse, (laughs) which sounds really obnoxious. I I will say, I pointed out, Spotify this week bought Locker Room as a competitor, which I have to say, there's something about this language of like Clubhouse, Locker Room. And I was like, you know, Locker Room talk, didn't we talk about getting rid of Locker Room talk in general? But nonetheless, every competitor, Everyone is getting into the Clubhouse world. It's insane. So we had Discord, Spotify, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. Twitch is getting into this. Game. YouTube is talking about it. Is there anyone who is not adding a Clubhouse? I- I'm sure. Like, we're gonna No, I think this is going to be the new stories. Like everyone was like joking about how like, everyone's going to add stories to their product. Like Spotify wants to add stories. I don't know what the hell that means in the case of Spotify itself, the product. But like it's going to be one of those things that everyone sees as an obvious next step because it's interesting. And frankly, I think that what Clubhouse did was light a fuse to a bomb it won't own. And now that I said that analogy out loud, it's terrible, but it's the best one I had on the fly. And so Discord, I think, is a great platform for this. Spotify is obvious. I mean, different parts of the market for each, each of these integrations. But like, I think I would much rather use Discord Clubhouse than Clubhouse Clubhouse. This is, to me, the biggest block to most social apps, right? Is you have an innovative product. You came up with something new. You actually have good network effects. You got the right people on. It was seated interestingly. And that's not enough anymore because there's so many large companies with massive product teams You know, if you think about it, Clubhouse will probably create billions of dollars of value for everyone but itself. And to me, that's one of the biggest challenges with building a social app today is you don't get to capture your own value. I love that. I immediately thought of Instagram creating stories and how that went from something I remember laughing at to that's the only kind of stories I do post these days. And so I totally agree. I mean, while it's a joke right now, maybe two years from now or maybe a year from now based on the news cycle, there's going to be the clone that we can't ignore I think some of the examples make more sense than others. The one that I'm most bullish on, if I have to pick one, is LinkedIn creating a clubhouse (laughs) competitor. Tell us why. Well, because my DMs are filled with people talking like they're in a clubhouse room anyways. It's a bunch of (laughs) pitching. It's a bunch of elevator pitches. You know, people already do LinkedIn lives all the time. I could see it being a lot easier bandwidth wise to do it on LinkedIn. I'm excited for LinkedIn live exclusively. So the kinds of folks who would do a LinkedIn live will concentrate over on LinkedIn. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> Let's then, do that. Which is not a problem. Like, it's just, it just different things I love to enjoy. It's nice to know the people who would enjoy that will go somewhere else. Well, this is my beef with Clubhouse because I go on Clubhouse because I want to stay hip and be cool and not become an old fogey in the tech world. And every time I fire it up, it's like, you know, like the hustle crew, you know, you know, zero to a million or die. And I'm always like, well, this is kind of like LinkedIn hustle culture on Clubhouse where it doesn't really belong. Put all that in Clubhouse, take all the gamers, put them on Discord live, take all the musical conversations, put them on Spotify live, whatever it's called. And, you know, I I feel like you end up with Clubhouse solving 
its selection problem or the discovery issue by just getting shattered into eight pieces and putting better places where they have niche audiences already. And that to me makes more sense. Not great for Clubhouse investors per se, but like as a user, that to me just is much more reasonable. But I think we have a game to play briefly, which is where is the clubhouseification of products going next? And we have to go ahead and make a guess. Now there's two ways to play this game. You can make a serious guess, which is boring. <laughs> or you make... <laughs> That is not a serious guess. Or you can make a non-serious guess and get brownie points with the audience. So, Natasha, we're going to start with you because this was your idea originally. Where is clubhouseification of audio going next? Which platform, which app, where is it going? I think Miami is going to create its own clubhouse. Oh, it's just that gonna... is going to vomit in my mouth. <laughs> it's, that's going to be it. Miami clubhouse. And that's going to be the name of it, too. Like, It's not going to try and be subtle about trying to compete. But Miami's over us joking about them. They're over being eavesdropped on. They just want to create their own clubhouse. It's just going to be Keith Raboy telling everyone else that they're jealous of his success. <laughs> look, look he, he is now an instructor at Barry's Boot Camp, as we found out on Wednesday. So he's already <laughs> broadcasting to a room of people. It's just I now it's putting natural. that online. But my guess is, look, I, I actually think you'll have the clubhouseification of telehealth. Imagine if you could get your diagnoses in a live chat room with thousands of people watching at the same time. <laughs> That's my made-up example where Clubhouse... The dream, as some would say. That's, that's the nightmare. You know, it's like playing Jeopardy. It's like, which illness do you have? Do you have COVID? No, $500. You're going to do this. Something like that. It'll be a game show. It'll be, it'll be lots of fun for the kids. Well, okay, so I'll, I'll go last year with obviously the best answer because those were terrible. Um, I'm going to go with uh, Microsoft Excel, the desktop version, because who doesn't want to do a live Clubhouse with other Excel nerds? Spreadsheet people stick together. This is true. Long spreadsheets. I can already see the the show, The Pivot Table. Table. Yeah. There you go. There you go. If you don't get that joke. Startups and Excels. Yes, exactly. You get 88 points. Unsubscribe. Don't tell people that. You you unsubscribe if you don't get that joke. I want to talk about that for a second. It's a great segue to my, my next thing. Briefly, Twitter Spaces. I have used Twitter Spaces, which is essentially Twitter's equivalent to Clubhouse, integrated into my main social graph, if you will, because, you know, I love Twitter more than anything else. To me, it's kind of like a good comp for like a general use Clubhouse competitor. Like all these other ones that we're talking about seem to be more, more niche oriented. Are you guys seeing people use Twitter Spaces? I'm just starting to see tweets now, people saying, I'll be on Twitter Spaces at. So to me, it's just kind of breaking in to the mainstream. But I'm curious if you've seen activity on the Spaces front. I've definitely seen less compared to Clubhouse. Like a lot more people I follow on Twitter are tweeting out their Clubhouse links. Yeah. That said, I think a lot of journalists who have huge platforms on Twitter, I still believe Twitter followers are a little bit more powerful, a lot more powerful at this stage than Clubhouse followers, at least in my world. So I do see a lot of journalists creating rooms in Twitter spaces. That much be anecdotal. I only have 1.4 thousand Clubhouse followers. So whenever I go on Clubhouse, no one shows up. And I'm like, oh, well, why would I go to Twitter where I've got you know, more than that. <laughs> I do want to talk about, we're going to completely pivot the show. So we've talked about media, which frankly is getting a lot of attention. That's why we're yeah. talking about the show. But so is SAS. SAS always gets so much money and attention because it actually makes money. Does it though, Danny? <laughs> it does if you're at Spotify scale and you're in 175 countries. But nonetheless, this week we had a, a major funding for Pipe. Pipe is a one-year-old company that is reportedly raising $150 million at a $2 billion price point. What's key here is Pipe is designed to help you finance your future payments in SaaS revenue. So when you sign a contract for a SaaS product as a customer, oftentimes you will pay over a year, two years, three years in these enterprise licenses. As a startup, you want that money up front. It's called factor inventory financing. You want that money as early as possible. You don't want to wait for the company to pay you, you know, 32 months from now. And so you can actually finance that. You can actually go to a bank and say, hey, I'm guaranteed to get 100000 a month from this customer. Can I get an upfront price for this 
And Pipe is trying to do that automatically online. There's a couple of people in this sort of SaaS securitization space. They're one of them doing super well. Supposedly have 3,000 companies already signed up on the platform. And like I said, it's only a year old or, or, or a year and a half old. So this is an amazingly fast speed growth startup. My big question, and this might be jumping a little bit forward, but do you guys think this is a nice to have company or a need to have company? To me, it feels like a nice to have. I think this is a need to have because I think for SaaS companies today, if you want to compete with other folks who are doing the exact same thing, I mean, it's an arms race. If you don't take the money up front, you don't have the cash to spend, which means your competitors spend on marketing, they spend on sales, they spend on acquiring those customers and you don't. So uh, you have to maintain, you know, at the leading edge of that competition. I want to just pause for everyone out there who's like, wait a minute, this is just revenue based financing. It sounds like what the hell is this? We've heard about this forever. What Pipe is building isn't a platform where it buys your ARR for an upfront cash fee. What it does is create a platform where everyone can buy and sell and trade ARR. So they're trying to essentially turn ARR into this uh, Danny asset class effectively, mm -hmm. the securitization of future payments into present day value. And you'll always get a bit of a discount. If Danny Inc. sells you know, a 1,000 MRR subscription, it's worth 12K over a year, I'll pay you 10.5K for it today because the present value of cash is higher than cash down the road, blah, 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 blah. But you know what this is going to do is also provide kind of a, an interesting data foundation for what ARR really is worth. You know, like I mean, we're gonna have people buying and selling ARR, hopefully with some publicly revealed data about that in aggregate that'll let us know what things are actually worth, what we will pay for ARR today. And I wonder, Danny, if that'll factor backwards into VC valuations. If this will inform other pricing choices that come up. This is a derivative, right? It's yes. a asset-backed security, right? The asset is a, a cash flow. It's a revenue flow that's coming in and you're selling it to other folks. And you're saying, hey, I don't want to take the risk for this particular asset. What if that company blows up and it no longer pays its bills? What if they churn? And so, so you're taking that off your balance sheet out of your cash flow statement and sending it to other folks. What scares me a little bit here, in the small scale, it works really well and really smart, and particularly for the earliest stage companies where you need cash up front. Yeah. What scares me is as this gets bigger, like all derivatives, you're starting to scatter the risk around in the ecosystem and it becomes very intertwined, right? So if one startup explodes, it doesn't just explode its own revenue, it also no longer pays money for all the SaaS products it buys. So then that goes and scatters around the ecosystem as all those other ARR goes down. I mean, this, this is actually, I mean, in small effect, it's a very small market. This is to the 2008 financial crisis. I mean, that's really what it is. So the key question here is, who's evaluating the ARR quality? You know, are they being audited? Do we know which companies are in which tranches? Are you giving the top 10% of the ARR most reliable at a different yeah. price point than the bottom 10%? That to me is where these markets always go. And I'm just raising the, the caution flag. I love in that. In the sense that I'm super excited about the company. Yeah. But that's a spicy jalapeno. But let me let me unshoe it for you. So a couple things. One, <laughs> no one here is, to my knowledge at least, there's not <laughs> synthetic derivatives on top of these sales. So there's no one's making bets on the bets. So we're not really at the same level of, of lunacy that we saw in 2008. Two, Danny's discussion about tranches being priced differently is a great point if we were seeing these things packaged up into ARR-backed securities, I suppose, into like packaged assets, if you will, of different quality levels. I think currently you can only buy essentially contracts. So I don't think we've seen the grouping yet. So what Danny is saying is down the road, if this market gets more technically complex and therefore more potentially lucrative we could see bigger problems with it that could lead to contagion and so forth if there was a dramatic reset in the value of these things. But I would say that he is doing what I do as an anxious person and <laughs> catastrophizing the future today. <laughs> that my therapist taught me that. hey -o. Uh Anywho, right now it's a bit more simple. And Danny, you can tune your hopes for the different quality of ARR that you can buy. It's neat. And obviously there's huge demand for it. Is that not tranching the... Okay, I can tune. I only want the good stuff. I mean, you know, anyway. 
it's clear that their goal, though, is one day to become complex. They keep calling themselves the NASDAQ for revenue in the future. So I think that at some point when they have to scale or they've dried out their current pipeline, that we might start seeing the issues. Their current pipeline? Oh, Ayo. no. Yeah. I didn't even mean to do that. I know. I had to call it out for you because you said it too smoothly. Danny, <laughs> before we move on, question for you, which is, if this pipe system does become, let's say, just the norm, for lack of a better phrase, does this dilute the need for early stage venture capital for, say, SaaS companies? Because if they land a big contract, they can just sell it, get the cash up front, and then they can self-fund longer, is my read? Does, does this- yeah, That's the argument for a lot of these folks, right? Is, you know, the, the competitors to pipe oftentimes talk about it as a, to founders as like, limit your dilution, right. right? You don't have to raise as much capital, you can fund it. The reality is, of course, is that if you're an early stage company, you don't have as much revenue in the first place, right? So so to me, the actual kink that where, where they actually kick in is really at the growth stage, right? Like if you think about the curve, it's like when you start to get the tens of millions of ARR, that $100 million growth round you otherwise would have taken, that's when you can show up in pipe and say, hey, give me this money up front. I want this now. And you save yourself a growth round. That to me is where the, the real magic is. I would say long-term, I think there's a really interesting theoretical question is, is if you can buy and sell revenue, then when you're buying and selling a company, what are you buying if it's not the revenue? So a company's value goes down if you've pre-sold all the revenue. Right, right. Like if I own the revenue, but you've already sold off the revenue, you know, the, yeah. you know, it's like, what are you buying at a certain point? That's a, that's an open question. That's not one we're going to answer. You're buying, show. you're buying the contract reups. Essentially, you're buying the the net. And I was wondering, I was like thinking it might be fluffier. Like I was like, why? Like what are the metrics we're viewing? I would love to know if a company is using Pipe to share its metrics with us down the road, right? Like if Pipe becomes the Nasdaq for revenue and then a right. company tells us their revenue, are they going to say this is like Pipe verified? I would well, rather- Up to including know. like, will companies be valued as companies versus revenues in the future? Meaning like, oh. would you restructure the whole stock market just around revenues? It's just cash flows. You can buy and sell all kinds of cash flows and a company is really just a basket of cash flows. It's not wow. anything else. Well, you're thinking about you're that all, in your you're, noggin you're as all, you're running around Central Park. <laughs> not all of us live in New York, Danny. None of us live in New York. Danny, you live in Brooklyn. As you're running around, I don't know, Greenpoint or whatever. Listen, so so really quickly, I think you can only sell kind of like the current contract. So you'd always retain the upside as the company in the re-up. So you, the business retains something. Here's the funny thing. If you sell your revenues, right, for cash, it hurts your enterprise value, right? Because enterprise value, you deduct cash. And so all you'd be doing is essentially making your company less valuable on an enterprise basis which is hilarious. It's an accounting issue, but it's funny. And, and, and then you're going to do share buybacks and then the flow will continue in the magical way that the ecosystem works. But we have two venture firms. We're running out of time. I do want to make sure we give a lot of time. Talking about people who walk around Central Park, Alex, Harlem Capital raised a second fund. Natasha, I believe you talked to them. What's the scoop going on over there? Yeah, I've talked to them a little bit. I did wake up to this news post-vacation. This is the one that actually got me excited. So Harlem Capital raised $134 million for its second fund, which was above its target of 100 million. Their goal is to back around 45 seed stage companies with the explicit focus on backing founders who are women and people of color. And this is a really fascinating firm. I mean, founded in 2015, managing partners Henri Pierre Jacques and Jared Tingle. They're both 29 years old, so super successful in all views of the word. If you look at kind of how they've grown over the years, they closed their first fund in 2019 at 40 million. Mm. Two years later, 134 million. They're doing something right. That's impressive. Danny, 134 million compared to 40 million, you can do a lot more damage with that, right? You can do more follow-ons, you can protect your ownership longer. What are the uh, the real implications of having kind of triple the capital from 40 to 130? I think you nailed it. For most seed funds, it's basically holding on to your ownership through the A and the B, right? And then you can do SPVs or whatever to fill in the cap table from that point on. But 
you know, you can actually have it on your balance sheet, right? And and for particularly for a firm like this, where it's doing a couple dozen seed investments, if a, a sizable number of those raise follow-on capital, which you would hope for any seed fund, that's a lot of demand on the cap table, right? That's a lot yeah. of demand on what's in the bank. So I think they're going to have a lot more flexibility. They're almost certainly going to bring on more folks. So you'll see a team expansion. I don't know what the geography sort of breakdown is, but my guess is they'll also cover more geographies and, and just expand the remit quite a bit. So I think it's great to see the focus on women in POCs and also the means to actually fund those for longer periods of time. And I think it's a clear story. And if you are a diverse team, you will find diverse talent. It's not a pipeline problem. Currently, I think 61% of Harlem Capital's Fund One portfolio companies are led by Black or Latin execs, while 43% are led exclusively by women. Damn. That kind of metric is so hard to pull out from other venture capital firms. And I want this to become the traditional venture capital firm at the risk of sounding too pro-VC in general. <laughs> One last thing on Harlem Capital that I would love both of your thoughts on is this idea that they're experimenting with that's called culture carry, where the founders that get a Harlem Capital investment will split 1% of the firm's carry. So they're getting kind of a stake in the fund's profit. They want each other to succeed. What do you guys think about that? And I'm also really curious if you've heard anything like that before. There are more and more firms that have done models like this. Sometimes they're called like friends and family funds. When you look at the S1s for a lot of these companies, I've seen them, I believe, with Sequoia has something like this. Kleiner has had something like this. Lightspeed has had something like this. If you look at the actual entity names, you'll find that oftentimes that like $10 million check was really written by three individual funds. And one will be like a main fund, one will be like a partner's fund, and one will be like a friends and family fund. You can kind of read between the lines of what these are. Yeah. And I'm doing that from memory. So those firms may or may not have exactly those programs. But I, I, I do see more and more firms trying to incent founders to help the firm out, to build community, to give that return back to the founders. And I think it's great. I mean, you know, uh, obviously there is a network effect to all these different groups. I think there will be a particular network effect around Harlem compared to a lot of venture funds, given the folks who are involved and, and their commitment to each other. And so it just makes sense to kind of incentive align what people are already doing. By the way, a great way to get on equity if you want to get your stuff on the show, distribute more money to more people of more diverse backgrounds. We always care about that and we always want to talk about it. So do that. And then ta-da, you'll be on equity. Closing out today, I have a question about, about MacVC. Is it, is it MacVC or is it MACVC? Is MACVC? Like, how do you pronounce this name? Because the C in Mac is capitalized and it's blowing my mind. I couldn't tell you. I could not tell you. I was I actually really going to ask. I was going to ask someone. Don't know who I was going to ask because I'm sure everyone's equally confused. Let's go with the purpose of this show. Let's go with Mac. MacVC. I'm not even going to explain why. <laughs> they put together a $103 million inaugural fund. They are an LA-based investment firm focused on software-enabled businesses. Not a huge surprise there. Software is enormously lucrative and profitable. All VCs love it. And according to Marlon Nichols, quote, we're sticking with the concept that talent is ubiquitous, but access to capital and opportunity is not. So another firm focused on founders that may not have kind of met the traditional venture capital rubric and therefore will hopefully distribute more funds to more founders and, uh, you know, just really expand the pie and also divide up a little bit more fairly who gets access to it and who profits. I I'm excited by this. And I, I can't believe we have two nine figure funds on this show that are not helmed by Stanford dropouts. I mean, are, what a change yeah, of pace. Black-led venture capital firms raising this much money is super notable. Monique Woodard, who is the founder of Cake Ventures, tweeted out that this is kind of, it's a shifting, it's a shifting news item to see. I mean, I feel like it was both a time to pause and also just realize that it's not one-offs, right? I feel like we don't cover this size funds that much because we're so used to them. But when they're created by Black venture capitalists, it just is a much louder noise. Some classic LPs, Goldman Sachs and Greenspring Associates, very common across the venture industry. Two universities, University of Michigan and then Howard University, oh, a historically Black university and college. 
and then Mitch and Frida Kapoor, and then Foot Locker. Huh. So like an interesting mix of like corporates, universities, institutionals. You know, I think you get the imprimatur from a lot of the LPs who are across a lot of different funds, which is really important. But then you're also getting, you know, capital from some new folks who may not always invest in the VC industry. So I, I, I think that mix is a, a success. But I think that wraps up our show for today. It does, except for one thing, which is Natasha just said, go blue, which is the traditional and annoying thing that University of Michigan fans say. Sadly, I can no longer mock that because I think my brother's going back there for his PhD. <laughs> there so we sadly, go. ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I didn't even go there. <laughs> go blue. And that's equity. We're back Monday morning. You're all tremendous. Goodbye. Hey, I'm Daryl Etherington, and I'm here to tell you about Found, a new podcast from TechCrunch all about early stage founders. Every week, we talk to a different founder about why they chose the startup path to begin with and how they handle the tricky business of building a company. Hear about anxiety-inducing VC pitch meetings, difficult decisions about when to change direction, and uplifting stories about what happens when chasing your dreams goes right. I want to build something category-defining, market-leading. And so uh, when when you have an ambition like that, raising capital helps if, if you're like okay i just want to live off my business and 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 that's it right like i'm not trying to transform industries or anything like that i'm just trying to pay my bills and that no of course don't go for venture capital it's basically a lightweight metal that's elastic so it can't be punctured it's actually bulletproof too that's what another cool thing so there's military why don't we make everything out of this i don't understand exactly <laughs> we were thinking that state memory alloy is going to be the next steel and we looked across um, psychology sociology social neuroscience um, spirituality and like any aspect of like what connection between people can be and we've kind of come up with a model for like what different types of energy feel like and because we're working with our own model all the time we capture our own reflections about our own work and that becomes content for the ai like data based on the insights and experiences of our like very diverse team members found is hosted by myself and TechCrunch managing editor jordan crook and you can find it in apple podcast or your podcast app of choice Subscribe now and get our first episode when it premieres April 9th.